Hi everyone, we're back for episode 28 of Customers Who Click, and today I've got Sam Nearly with me talking about customer feedback and market research. It's obviously an incredibly important piece for any business, and really more marketers at companies big and small should be running this sort of research and really learning what drives their customers to purchase, um, and finding out why their customers like their products, like their competitors' products. Sam's an expert at uh, designing surveys and really asking the right questions to ensure your feedback is useful and relevant and not biased by you know, phrasing or the use of particular types of questions. So let's hear from Sam now. Hi, Sam. Thanks for joining me today. Um, do you want to tell us a bit about yourself, a bit of your background and, uh, and why you're doing what's, what you do at the moment? Sure. So I'm, I'm currently an uh, independent consumer insight specialist. Uh, that mostly means that uh, I rely on survey-based uh, research to help clients uh, answer their kind of toughest market research questions and strategy and brand questions. I was I, I spent uh, the, the kind of the bulk of my experiences in the creative agency world at Publicis in New York. They're a big creative agency, part of Publicis Group, the holding company that has uh, big clients like Walmart and various P&G brands, Citibank, the financial institution. So the the kind of bread and butter of my experience is, is squarely in the... Uh, uh, related to the stuff that you look at when you stroll up and down an aisle uh, online or in a store. So it, it, before that, I uh, uh, got interested in behavioral science m- more at the theoretical level uh, as kind of a freelancer uh, in a writing capacity in that role. Uh, and but it wasn't until publicist that I kind of uh, learned the more analytical side. So you know how to how to write a survey, how to how to visualize the data, how to pull out insights. Uh, how to give a presentation, how to actually help a client, all, 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 all that good stuff. So now, so now I'm kind of, you could, you could maybe say kind of, uh, uh, kind of at the intersection of, uh, market research, behavioral science, consumer insights, uh, if there is an intersection of those three things. Yeah. Okay, cool. So we're working with some pretty big brands and kind of, uh, looking at, is it that, um, why, why do people, click on certain products and placements or why do they pick up certain items on the sh- off the shelves and how do we get them to, to pick the items we want them to pick? Yep. Uh, it's, it's also, uh, uh, so there, there's, there's tactical questions like that. Uh, so P&G is, is, you know, really obsessed with this stuff. Um, what product benefits do people look for when they shop for toilet paper or shampoo? Uh, what's the price range that, that they're looking for, uh, and on and on and on. Uh, but, but also at, at the brand level, uh, they're asking questions like, you know, what, what should the Charmin brand represent? Uh, uh, what should head and shoulders represent? Uh, well, another client was, was Tampax. Uh, your listeners might be familiar with the like a girl campaign, which involves video of girls running quote, like a girl. Uh, and, and it showed that a lot of the girls, uh, about under six or seven years old, just ran, ran as fast as they could versus the older girls kind of played into the stereotype of, of unathletic girls. Uh, so there, Tam- Tampex is clearly, uh, moving way beyond the tactics of a, of a specific product and, uh, trying to make a statement at the cultural level to kind of, uh, uh, you know, drive sales in that area. So, so it's it's what you said, but uh, it, it's also can be uh, much much bigger uh, and broader than that. 
Yeah, okay. It's, yeah, it's interesting that you said um, like PNG are obsessed with that that feedback and, and what what features and what, what benefits people are looking for because I think it's something that's really lacking in e-commerce quite a lot. And not just e-commerce, actually. Lots of startups, I think, miss this. Um, this whole benefits-led approach, but also getting that feedback from people. So I think it's, you know, for me, it's one of the most underrated uh, aspects of marketing is is not just using data to to analyze what people are doing on their website and stuff, but actually getting feedback from customers and kind of, I guess, matching that up to that data to really understand what people are really looking for um, and, and why they're actually really buying your product. Yeah, so the, the, this is like co- coming from uh, just spending four or five years with P&G and Walmart as, as your clients, like it is, it is almost sacrilegious to hear, to hear someone say that because these guys spend so much time and money on uh, soliciting customer feedback uh, in various forms. I mean, so focus groups would be one, surveys would be one, shop-alongs would be one, where they, where they literally uh, have people just shop through uh, sometimes mocked up stores and they just follow them. Uh, in-home uh what 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 and that's referred to researchers that just like observe people in their home that sounds creepy but it's actually a a pretty helpful thing um and if you get the right research it it can be really helpful uh there's a i think there's a case study of uh uh that showed how in-home research led to the development of swiffer uh that disposable mop uh i think there's an equivalent brand in the uk um, I'm not sure what the name is, but uh, it's the mop where you swap out the the pad at the bottom every time you use it. Oh, um, yeah, yeah. Um, I don't know the brand. There might even be a couple of them. Um, yeah, yeah. There, it's a I, big phase. I can actually yeah. picture the advert where it's like the, the mop head's on like a ball, ball, like a ball joint. And so yep, that's like the it's one. super flexible and, and then she the – well, I think it is a she in the advert all the time, uh, can take off the the kind of mop pad at the bottom and just chuck it away and then just put a new one on. Um, yeah, so that, that, I mean, that's P&G doing its research. I mean, lately they've been, they like they hired neuroscientists to uh, put people in fMRI machines and watch ads. Um, I'm extremely skeptical. I haven't worked in a neuroscience lab for a hot second and uh, having to cap EEGs, uh, on people and uh, tell them to sit still and try not to blink and don't move a muscle. Uh, I'm I'm skeptical of that approach, but but I mean, but that's not the point. The point is that they they see an opportunity, yet another opportunity to get feedback from from people. Uh, so it, it's it, it's uh, that that is uh, that's the game that 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 Walmart and. And PNG or others are playing and, and for the most part winning. So to, to me, it's second nature to uh, start with the customer, figure out what they need, you know, and what they need at every level. As I said earlier, at that tactical aisle level and uh, uh, how they might be responding to uh, brand messages that are kind of being plopped in into culture at large. Yeah. So, I mean, yeah. So I said uh, that I felt that feedback was kind of, really underrated and really underused um is there, is there a particular area that you feel is really you know obviously you, you 
the area you focus on is a little different, but is there an area of marketing you feel is quite kind of underrated, underutilized at the moment? Yeah, I, th- I think it's, I think it's a, the most underrated thing about marketing is, is kind of uh, people that exist between uh, the, the, the analytics involved in a really good A-B testing and the, the people uh, involved at the uh, brand strategy level or the brand planning level. So most people predominantly in the creative agencies. Um, on the A-B testing side, I mean, let me just kind of give props to both sides because they're really important. Um, and, and as you know, I'm preaching to the choir here. I mean, you can really boost your conversion rate uh, by testing stuff, uh, by testing the location of buttons, um, whether to include the average review, whether to include reviews. There's this famous case study called the $3 million, $300 million button. You can Google it, which I learned about from the ad guy, Rory Sutherland at Ogilvy, where apparently uh, some analytics guy uh, included one button that, that yielded $300 million annually for a company. So it must it's got to have been like Walmart or Amazon. Um, to their e-commerce experience. And um, it was the continue as guest button. So this was years ago. So I think that must've been kind of the first use of that. Also from my background in behavioral science, I I know about the value of nudging, if it can help dramatically drive organ donation rates. So so you literally save lives, it can help people claim social security uh, at the right time. Um, and so these small little interventions that people don't really notice can really go a long way on the other side. And this is kind of what I really learned and came to appreciate at, at publicists is the side of, of branding. Um, you you obviously can't really AB test a brand. A brand is, is something that you seed in culture and then you let people react to it. There's a good example of this. There's this great blog post by this guy named Kevin Simler called ads don't work that way, where he basically challenges the idea that ads uh, are, are designed just to, to, to build associations uh, between emotional associations. Uh, so, uh, and uh, he, he's making the point that it's way more social than that. So he cites this example of uh, this ad campaign in the New York City subways that try to get people to drink fewer uh, sugary drinks because uh, they're like, like crazy unhealthy. And um, what it had, um, it had a bunch of uh, uh, images of drinks being poured out. But it was like a bunch of fat falling out of the, the cup. And they placed them all in public spaces. So in a, in a way, like the unhealthiness of the drink became part of common knowledge. And so if you're sitting there in the subway drinking a Coke or whatever, now you know that the other people know that you're kind of being unhealthy. So maybe you're a little more self-conscious. So again, you can't, you can't really A-B test that. That's, you're now existing in the world of messages and images, and you're kind of prying on people's social instincts and not just their tendency to take the path of least resistance, which is what defaults do. Yeah. Uh, um, so I, I think there's this rich middle ground, uh, and, and, and I think, th- and I can get into this a little bit, but uh, the, the, I think the reason it doesn't really exist is, is these are like two totally different, not totally, but pretty different groups of people. Uh, the world of brands is filled with, 
with people that are like obsessed with culture and ideas, but are not strong analytically at all. And they actually kind of think that stuff is just kind of like table stakes and not that important and just left for the nerds. And then of course, on the other side is the AB testing crowd, if I could call it that. It's like, well, what the hell is a brand for? That is so abstract. It doesn't matter. What you need is to actually test this stuff. Because like, well, what else are you going to do to boost your conversion rate? Um, so yeah, maybe I'll pause there and let you react to that before we kind of get into what a, in the middle space looks like. But that's kind of uh, broadly see, broadly kind of my analysis or how I see the world having come from uh, a creative agency, but now kind of getting into the world of uh, e-commerce. Just a, a couple of comments and some things you said earlier, uh, like guest checkout. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's the, one of the things that is always recommended now um, for CRO, you know, people, especially for first purchases, I think people don't like to create the account to, to make that purchase. First time people just want to make it quick and easy as possible. Um, if they have a really good experience and you follow up with some valuable information and content, then you can kind of get them to create that account and then you can build on that data later. But, Generally, um, especially for e-commerce, um, it's so important just to allow people to, to check out quickly. Um, and then on that that, um, that advert, Subway advert, uh, or the, the one about the soda, um, it just reminded me of, and I, I can't actually remember exactly how this works, but with the uh, COVID messaging here in the UK, they realized after a while that there was a particular type of message um, about like staying safe and protecting others that wasn't really working. And when they just switched it up a bit, it worked significantly better. And I think it was something to do with um, instead of just generally, you know, like wash your hands, wear a mask, like keep everyone safe. I think they switched it to really focus on, on individuals and your close um, like family and friends. So they, I think they just switched it to say, you know, keep your friends and family safe. And it was that sort of switch that suddenly they saw a much better um, kind of response and feeling towards that messaging because people, it created that connection with people they knew rather than just anyone out there. In a lot of the companies that I've, I've worked with and worked in, um, the, the ones that do CRO at least, or even just just marketing generally, you know, brand is is that separate team. They, they kind of sit in marketing, but they're always considered that other team that just does their, you know, making things look pretty, uh, coming up with keywords and terms that everyone should be using. But it's actually the marketing team, the, the real marketing teams that uh, that are the valuable ones. They're actually getting the work done and, and driving acquisition and retention. Um, and I think part of that is actually because a lot of brand teams or brand managers don't what well, that, that I've seen don't really focus on building that actual real brand and that with with the values and the kind of message messaging that resonates with with their customers and their target audience the stuff I've seen tends to be so much more around colors and fonts and you know being on brand with that sort of stuff and that's why I think you get that disconnect because, yeah, you get those CRO people and, and I, I've been guilty of it at times saying, look, I don't really care about the brand stuff. 
um, you know, if I if, if a button works better in a different color, let's use that different color. Um, and that's because that's where the brand attitude seems to be. You know, it, it's not about those values and how we should be communicating with our customers. It's the, uh, these are the colors we use. These are the fonts we use. And we want to have a friendly tone of voice. And, you know, yeah. That's that's the approach I've seen from a lot of brands, which yeah is why I think um, a lot of a lot of other marketers, like performance marketers, tend to uh, push it aside a little bit and say, "All right, you you do your thing over there. We'll get on with the marketing." Yeah. So this is so I'll tell you about uh, uh, like an exercise or a piece of research that I like to do with some clients uh, that I, that I think is this good middle ground and, and kind of kind of alert people to the how important this stuff is. Um, by the way, I am sympathetic. I mean, if you're a smaller, medium-sized business and if you're a CMO, uh, like just getting the factory up and running is a massive challenge. And the last thing you want is some like ad guy rolling in talking about how your, you know, your brand needs to be relevant and culture and all this shit. And it's like, uh, that's not what I'm prescribing. Um, uh, but anyways, what I like to do is, uh, uh, send, uh, create a survey, uh, recruit people, you know, you can recruit whatever sample you want, uh, send them to a website and ask them a question, uh, you know, what does this brand stand for? Or, uh, complete the following sentence sentence. This brand stands for blank. Um, now, uh, Let's say you're selling any given product and your, your, the copy on your landing page is a product benefit. Like this helps relieve pain or it's more filling or, or whatever. And let, let's say um, you scroll down a little bit and it has a, a message about sustainability, about how this brand is, uh, you know, it, it's generally a green brand. Uh, uh, and then let's say you scroll down again, uh, and start seeing, uh, some of uh, the actual products with some of the pricing. So, so right there, like in the first few seconds, uh, it would, it would actually, it'd probably be kind of hard to answer that question because there's three different, uh, kind of strategies being activated there. Uh, you know, product benefit, product price, and then a kind of sustainability play. So, um, a lot of times that um, is, is kind of hard to capture uh, with, I guess, what you might call traditional A-B testing, although you, you, can, you can correct me here on it. I, I guess you would kind of throw in like uh, uh, end of the website survey to try and answer that. But I found that this approach of just recruiting an outside sample and sending them to the website and asking this question can, can be really eye-opening. You know, because it's so obvious what what our brand stands for from the inside. But to get that outside perspective goes can go a long way. Um, yeah, abs- so- absolutely agree. I, I run a lot of surveys um, to you know existing customer bases and and people who kind of browse browse the website and leave. And yeah, I, d- I don't focus too much on what do you think this brand stands for, but there's a lot of you know, did you find what you're looking for? Or what was the reason you didn't make your purchase? Uh, what's the reason you haven't, uh, you only made one purchase and never came back again? And that sort of feedback is a bit more related to what, you know, I guess what we're talking about uh, as CRO um, and that optimization piece. Um, 
but you do tend to get messages and feedback related to um, missing messaging or messaging that doesn't really uh, resonate with those people. Totally. And, and so like, why does this matter? Why, you know, you, let's see, the counter argument would be something like, well, we're just arming people with the most relevant information. What could be wrong with that? And I think the problem is, is that there's like implicitly uh, or maybe, maybe consciously sometimes uh, if someone is just a little, little skeptical about what you do, uh, they're going to be less likely to buy. Uh, versus if, if someone hits your landing page and thinks, oh, I know exactly what these guys are about, they're a little more likely to buy. Now, I bet the, the, the percent increase and decrease is really small, but man, I mean, that, that, that doesn't mean that, there, that there's not a big difference in, in profit, does there? So I think the, uh, the next step I would do after one of these analyses is then to, uh, this, I think this is where some really good market research could come in. Um, if you can ask clever questions and be creative, then you might be in a better position to pick one of those routes. So I mentioned three earlier, the product benefit price and sustainability could, you know, those are just three there. There could be other directions, uh, but eventually you're going to have to kind of land on one. And that's where, uh, you, uh, I think there's another, uh, uh, there's another good example of where a good middle ground could, uh, the middle ground between AB testing and the world of brands comes in. Cause you want in that situation, you want someone who's good with data and by good with data, I just mean like can work on Excel and visualize the data and not throw it into like 50 slides of PowerPoint that will lull you to sleep like ambient. I mean that, you, you just need to be kind of competent. Um, uh, but you also want someone who, who appreciates the world of brands uh, so they know what questions to ask. One of the, my favorite questions I ever asked was uh, for P&G Charmin. We asked, we told people, imagine your uh, office workspace was uh, all the toilet paper suddenly was switched over to Charmin. You know, how excited would you be? So we, we deliberately removed uh, control, price, uh, all the things that you typically measure, preference, uh, and just impose this brand on people um, to kind of see how they reacted. And of course, we swapped out Charmin with all the competitors to measure the differences. So um, uh, that was just kind of measuring brand equity, which of course BNG is obsessed with. Uh, but you can use that same kind of creativity to kind of think outside the box to ask you know, a good survey question that can then make that the answer to that question, well, like, what the hell do I stand for? Uh, a little more obvious. Uh, that to me is the hard part. I mean, it, it really is challenging picking the, the kind of strategic framework or direction or whatever you want to call it to then kind of uh, make all your decisions around. I mean, I, but I mean, you tell me, I mean, in your experience uh, as kind of an e-commerce pro, uh, would you say that that's true? I mean, that these brands really struggle with, uh, with kind of being a brand and figuring out what to do or what their identity is? I, I do, yeah, because, you know, all you have to do is, is go to five, ten different fashion sites and, and, and ask someone to explain what the difference is between them. 
you know, not only are all the sites almost identical in, in terms of actual like layout and structure, um, branding will be quite similar as well. Um, and there isn't much, in my opinion, you know, on a lot of these sites, there isn't much kind of branding, like real branding, like we're talking about. Um, you know, I think if you ask people, in fact, I was um, speaking to to someone the other day about um, where she buys like clothes from, and, uh, and she said this particular retailer, and it was pretty much because they do free shipping, free returns. And she said she wouldn't, probably wouldn't buy from them if they didn't do free returns. And so that's not, there's no, there's no brand loyalty there. It's literally just the convenience of being able to, 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 to buy online and return stuff if, if she doesn't want it. And I but I notice it a lot when I see a brand that does stand for something, you know, so I, I I've seen, you know, this year quite actually this year, more and more, I think a lot of brands who are very focused about the environment and uh, you know, their products are recycled or they're made from specific materials, which are, are more environmentally friendly and, you know, don't use so much water or, or whatever. Um, and it's, and it's very, very obvious that these brands actually do stand for that. And, and that's really a core part of their values. And they're not just, you know, sticking a, uh, like a banner on the website saying, yeah, we we're environmentally friendly. Um, so yeah, actually, I, um, it, I'm sorry. Uh, which, which brand was it? It was, I literally, I think I saw this today. Uh, there's a, yeah, I won't, I won't say the brand just in case it's wrong. A meat alternative product in the UK, um, received complaints about their advertising because they claimed it was more environmentally friendly, but there was absolutely nothing to back it up. They didn't provide any, any evidence, any information, and they had to remove the advert. And it's, it's that sort of thing, which, which I think can actually damage brands a little bit and damage that trust. Um, if, if you make these claims and either you can't back it up or you just don't do anything to back it up, uh, it just becomes a bit meaningless. So I, I have to plug a good book here, uh, and it has nothing to do with the world of uh, consumers or e-commerce. It, it actually has to do with end-of-life care. The, so the book is Being Mortal by Atul Gawande. He's a uh, surgeon at, uh, 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 at a hospital in Boston, and he writes for The New Yorker. So super accomplished, great writer, really compelling and uh, his book is about uh, end-of-life care, how we screw it up, how we can fix it. And, and how we screw it up is um, we basically just try and prolong it instead of, make it worth, instead of making life worth living. And uh, there's this really interesting piece of research he mentions in the book that showed that terminally ill patients who have discussions about their end-of-life goals actually live longer than patients with similar conditions who just received the standard medical treatment. Uh, and, and the discussions revealed what people actually care about. There was one, there was this one, someone mentioned, uh, like all he wants is the ability to watch football on Sundays and enjoy eating chocolate ice cream. And as soon as he can't have those things, like he, he pulled a plug and, um, the the key the key to these discussions is 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 clearly uh, as Guande says is doctors who know how to have them, 
Um, and he distinguishes between paternalistic relationships and informative relationships, the former just being uh, the doctor providing what they think is best for the patient, the latter being what the doctor, uh, the doctor is just giving the patient the facts, but letting them decide to kind of ultimately land on a third type where the doctor's role is to give patients the facts, but help them determine what they want. Uh, and, and as a researcher, that, that really resonated because I, I like hate the idea of being objective uh, and love the idea of kind of biasing people intentionally in order to get them or almost help them surface up the things that they really care about. Uh, so, cause you know, it's, it's like one to, uh, to kind of riff off the earlier example. It's one thing to, to learn that someone is suffering from, uh, like joint pain. And it's another to learn that the pain is preventing them from spending more time with their grandkids. And that's all they really care about. So, uh, if you're a business in that space, uh, you, and you're trying to answer that really difficult question, like what problem am I trying to solve? Like, why do I exist? Uh, it really helps to have a researcher who uh, kind of plays the role of that clinician um, in that they're, they're surfacing up these desires about desires, the things that we really want. Um, if you don't get to that next level, it, it's, it's probably going to, you're probably going to end up in that same zone that exactly what you just said about that retailer. There's like 15 other uh, other, other brands doing the same thing. Um, and yeah, like free shipping on returns is probably really, really helpful, but, uh, ultimately you want to be really clear about like why you exist. I, I think the, the case I'm making here is that there's a competitive advantage there, uh, that yeah. if you can answer that question, you can make more money. Uh, and I, th I think kind of pr previously the, these, this type of thinking may have been seen as, as like overly humanistic or philosophical, but, uh, it, you know, it shouldn't researchers just, you know, remain neutral and feed us the data, but, uh, like the doctors that are, uh, in that t position to give the facts, but also help determine the needs. Uh, I think there's a kind of a new role. This is what I refer to as, as middle ground. Uh, for them to kind of uh, be shaping these big identity questions. Uh, so yeah, that I, I, it's such a good book that has nothing to do with uh, what we're talking about, except that it kind of has everything to do with what we're talking about. Yeah, I can, I can see how it relates. Um, you know, it's the, the businesses that um, just crack on with their own plan and, and I guess give the customers what they think the customers want, kind of get to a certain level. Um, and that level can be can be huge, to be fair. Um, but you'd expect that the, the businesses that listen to their customers and take that feedback in and give them what they need, but also work towards what they want as well, will build, build that loyalty, build better lifetime values with those customers, um, better word of mouth, uh, which then brings in more customers as well. Um, and you'd expect them to get to like, yeah, that, that next level really. Yeah. And it, this is basically now PNG's business model. I mean, the reason I, uh, well, I mean, who, who, I mean, I'm not in a position to say, talk about PNG's business model. It's extremely sophisticated and complex, but the point is that 
they have a ton of brand equity out there. Um, and it's arguably more important than the actual products. Um, and um, so if, if we do like a Maslow's hierarchy of, of products, they would, they would be at like peak transcendence in the sense that, you know, they, they got the factory up and running they got the products out the door at a good price in all the stores. And now they're existing uh, heavily kind of at the brand level. Um, so it's really, so um, as I said at the beginning, like that's kind of the world I'm coming from and I'm always kind of be biased by it uh, in the sense that I always think that that's kind of ultimately the goal. And that, that's why I answered that, mentioned that bathroom question earlier is, they they were uh, Charmin and Bounty in that case were interested in just more creative ways to measure that brand equity. Uh, you know the traditional way is the NPS. You know, would you recommend this brand to a friend? Uh, which is like you know kind of important. I think that correlates with with sales, um, but it doesn't really quite capture the emotional um, that excitement factor. Uh, if you will, um, so I'm I'm constantly trying to think of uh, of good questions, survey questions or otherwise that uh, are that 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 kind of just do a better job of capturing how people think, uh, what people think about a brand or you know a landing page or a website. So so in turn, a client can actually you know be in a better position to figure out what to do or what their identity is. Um, now, now I can already hear myself drifting into the, into the, uh, brand planning world and kind of away from the world of, uh, AB testing. So you have to check me here and say, okay, that's a bunch of bullshit at the end of the day. Like you need an e-commerce site that works and people can, uh, click on the right things, figure out the price and go to checkout. Uh, uh, cause, uh, yeah, without that, I mean, everything I'm saying is probably stupid and useless. I mean, there's. I know there are two schools schools of thought on it. I, that is really important, but the the problem with that is it just going down that route of this website works, people can find and buy what they need. Is there's not much reason. Like, it kind of depends on what you sell, obviously. Um, there's no real reason to remember your name, your brand name. So you might buy. Uh, let's say watches. I, I like watches. Um, I might know that I want a particular brand of watch and I will find it for the right price on a particular website um, that just makes it really easy to buy the watch. Um, but if there's no kind of brand feeling to it and there's no, you know, you know, certain type of copy and tone of voice resonates well with me and makes me think I like this business. Um, whether it's in the email that I get after the purchase or just some of the, some of the stuff on the site. Um, if that stuff isn't there, I probably just won't remember what the name of that website is. And so next time I look for a watch, I'm just going to Google, where can I buy a fossil watch or Rolex and, and scan some websites. And again, if one of them has a, uh, you know, the, the experience that makes it really easy, I'll buy from them. Um, but if that second time, I have that, that, that brand resonates with me. I'm, I'm going to remember the name and then I'm going to come back to them. Um, and, and then I know there are loads of people who say, you know, conversion optimization is 
you know, the, the on-site optimization and product optimization is, isn't that important. What's really important is that the website uh, looks fantastic and the copy is well-written. And if you get those two right, no matter what else is happening on your site, you'll get the sales. And yeah, I don't, don't quite agree with that. You know, I, I think it needs to be a middle ground. You know, I, I do think everything's got to be there, but um, the the important thing for me always is, is not so much brand. I, I'm not a real brand person, but uh, you've got to build customer loyalty and engagement. You know, you, you've got to focus on that lifetime value and the lifetime value is always going to be higher if people remember your name and want to come back to your site to purchase and want to talk about your business with their friends. So let me let me briefly defend the uh, just make it look good crowd uh, because the, uh, one part of research that I uh, unexpectedly fell in love with is visualizing data. And to the point where I would spend a lot of time making sure it looked good perhaps too much time. Uh, but I was just kind of following the logic of my industry. And the logic is, uh, you know, images and that gut reaction people have when they look at something matter a lot because uh, they're only going to look at it for one second. And as a researcher, that it's going to be like a half a second. So when it came to actually giving presentations, uh, it really – I kind of turned it into a science in that it needed to be really clear what was being communicated through that data. Um, now, I, I also know the like the downside of focusing on that too much is that you, of course, lose the forest for for the trees. So it's like, okay, that that piece of information is clearly communicated, but what are you trying to say? Like, what's the point of your presentation? So I think that's roughly you know, analogous to, to your, to, uh, to, to what we're riffing on here. I mean, uh, fortunately with e-commerce sites, I don't think you get too much of the extreme. Um, you don't get sites that are just the most beautiful thing. Well, I've seen a few actually, but you, you don't get many sites which are super, super just design focused and make it look like the most awesome thing, but actually UX is a bit difficult and you don't get too many sites anymore, which, uh, you know, are quite easy to click through and, and find what you want, but the design is horrible. Um, for, so fortunately, I, th I think that you do, you get a bit of middle ground, but I do think there is, there is benefit to being a nicer design site. Um, I think if you put two sites which had the exact same UX, um, but the w one of them was designed really nicely, really prof uh, professionally um, and modern. And one was a bit of an older design. Um, the colors maybe weren't such a great mix or whatever. I, I do think people kind of trust the nicer design site better mm -hmm. um, initially. And and so, yeah, I, I do. One of the things I do push for is, is nicer designs and, and redesigning sites that are a bit, a bit old or, you know, out, outdated. Um, yeah. I mean, I suppose I'm, I'm a mix of all over the place, really. Um, I, I want to make it super functional, but it also has to look good. The, I wanted to go back on one little thing uh, that you said about the Rolex. 
I, I think there's also a social element there. So what I mean by that is you want to, as a customer, you want to trust the brand and you want to like, you want to like the watch. Uh, but I also think you want, you kind of want people to notice it when you go out into the world. Uh, and, I, and I don't mean that uh, in a vain way or an arrogant way. Um, I, I mean, like, like, like anybody, when, when we buy something and we wear it or use it out in the world, uh, there's just a little bit of signaling that's always going on, no, no matter kind of who you are. So the other, there, there's a, I mentioned earlier this, uh, this blog post um, called Ads Don't Work That Way. There's another really good example in there of this. Uh, and he mentions Corona, the the beer. Yeah. And he says that uh, the traditional uh, assumption is that all those ad campaigns about beaches, do you have those in the UK, the Corona with the beach, like you're on vacation? Yeah, the um, the Mexican beer. Corona. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah it's, it's a huge, massively popular beer here. It, yeah. it was one of those crazy things. I'm, I'm guessing you guys had it as well with, with COVID. Um, oh, yeah. It's called coronavirus. Um, the yeah. shelves, the, the only beer left on shelves was was Corona, which is just yeah. the most illogical thing. But sorry, go on. I know. It's it's pretty funny, though. Um, uh, yeah. It, what CMO would plan for that? Um, uh, anyways, the... Uh, so his point was, uh, you know, the traditional view is uh, run all these ads. So when you go to the grocery store, you see the Corona, you think about beaches. It's like you're on vacation. You buy, you buy the beer, you drink it. Oh, I'm on vacation. Uh, it, he calls this, I think, emotional inception. Like you're implanting an emotion. Uh, and he says that this is like all kind of total bullshit. We're not that you can't manipulate people that much. Um, but you can kind of uh, leverage our social instincts. So let's say you're invited to a barbecue and it's like 20 people. It's a nice backyard. It's in the afternoon. Um, what beer would you want to buy? So when you show up at that barbecue, you kind of send the signal like, hey, I'm here to have a good time and chill, but not get like super wasted. Uh, Corona would actually be a really good beer for that, as opposed to, uh, you know, Bud Light in the U.S. is probably going to more send the signal like, I'm going to drink a million of these and we're going to watch sports and we're also going to buy a bunch of Doritos and pizza and it's going to be awesome. And that does <laughs> yeah, sound pretty, pretty awesome, the, right? Pretty much the image I get. But yeah, yeah, like Corona here would be, you know, it's a sunny a sunny day, you want to go for some beers in the park or for a barbecue or whatever. Corona with the lime is kind of the, just the, the first beer that would come to mind. Totally. And so, by the way, I love thinking about brands in this setting. Like maybe not literally you show up at a barbecue, but you're walking down the street with a white t-shirt and suddenly on the front of the t-shirt is a, the Guinness logo. So the question I'd ask, to a person that who I imposed that scenario on is like, what do you think people think of you now? Uh, so you, you can do a control too. You ask people, you're walking down the street with a white t-shirt. What do people think of you? And then your, your AB test, the B would be, you're walking down a 
street with a Guinness shirt, what do people think of you? It's kind of a fun way to measure the social aspects of a, of a brand. Um, and which, which in my opinion are like soup, like really important is like what signals do, does your brand send? How do people receive those signals? So when I think about the watch Rolex and, and the role of brands, it's, I just, I think it's really important to remember that that second or third element is in addition to trusting the website and liking the product, you know, what you probably helps figure out, like how do people feel out and about when they're using it in what context do, do they use it? Um, again, the, I, I, I hope I'm not making abstract points here. I mean, these are all scientific questions to me that you can test with a, you know, a a good survey setup. It's it's a really good point because there's actually a beer here uh, whose name I won't mention, Um, but it's basically known as wife beater. Oh yeah. Yeah. Um, I didn't. And and if if you're seen, if you see someone with a can of that specifically the can, not the, uh, not their, their kind of famous glass. Um, if you see someone with a can of it, I think the uh, it's a, a worse impression than than a lot of other beers, or uh, or even if someone has the glass. But yeah, it's a, it's a really interesting way of phrasing those questions because I, I know that I know from my experience, running surveys is difficult. It is really difficult to actually get the right questions there to give you actual like genuinely the right answer. Well, obviously, there's no right answer, but. Uh, valuable feedback from customers. It's it's it is so easy to just add that little bit of bias by putting the wrong word on there, or uh, you know, mentioning you know, like, like I think when when we first spoke uh, a few weeks ago, uh, I mentioned a, a survey that had been running at a business that I worked uh, worked with, and one of the questions on their survey was it was a survey for for people who cancelled I think cancelled their subscription. Or, or hadn't uh, hadn't upgraded from the free trial to the subscription, and one of the answers was nine pounds ninety nine is too expensive, <laughs> and it just it stood out as just the obvious answer to pick. Um, you know, the others the others were stuff like not there weren't enough magazines on the plat on the in the app, or um, the magazine that I like to read isn't available stuff like that, but just nine ninety nine is too expensive was just such a loaded biased uh, option that it just, it was so, you know, and obviously the majority of the answers were for that. So I kind of had to dig into the rest of the data a little bit to see what the actual f- specific feedback from people was. Yeah. And did you, I can't remember, did you uh, gain more clarity or were you able to sidestep the obvious answer or is more research needed? Um, yeah, I mean, I had, we had to, we redid the survey. Um, it, it probably still wasn't fantastic. Like you'd probably tear it to pieces, but I think we changed it to something like, um, uh, just something around like the, the price is too high or, or something like that. So we took away the, the digits 999, um, took away the it, too expensive, just kind of rephrased it a little bit, which I, th- I think helped a bit, but you could see from, from the comments people were making, um, you know, there were loads of comments around people just not using it as much as they'd like to. Like, so they were basically saying they didn't get the value from it. So it wasn't nine ninety nine was too expensive. 
they didn't think they were getting the value from that 999. Yeah. So then we started using or implemented messaging around um, how much value we thought they had got from it um, by looking at magazines and kind of putting some prices together and saying, well, we know in this month you read this magazine, this magazine, this magazine. So on that basis, you know, compared to buying the magazines off the shelf, um, you know, from a news agent or whatever, you have saved this amount of money by using the subscription. And that sort of messaging worked really, really well. Yeah. Um, it's the it's, same as the, sorry. <laughs> um, benefit, yeah. Same as when you break down pricing, um, I, I, you see it a lot with subscriptions, you know, 999 is um, like the price of a coffee a week or something like that. You know, it's, it's when you, you kind of break down what is actually quite a small pricing anyway, but you break it down even further to relate it to what people kind of understand. And, and I found that sort of messaging works really well as well. Yeah, hugely. I mean, you can get real flexible with uh, how you frame a price and that's kind of the strain of a uh, behavioral science I emerged from is framing effects, mental accounting, all those things that at first don't really make sense until you read a little bit about our evolutionary history and get a better sense of what we're equipped to dealing with. Nodding along about uh, the fact that, that the wording really does matter. I mean, I'm of two minds here. And the, and the first is that you really do have to pay attention to this. I, I've read uh, a good, good reading here. If you want another recommendation, this is like 70 years older is George Gallup has a book called, I think the pulse of democracy, um, which is kind of a grandiose title. Cause most of the book is about like how he does polling. Um, and he, he's just, this guy has just got, was obsessed with all the things that you should can be concerned about, including, you know, framing effects. He's got a whole, he's got like three pages on when to use uh, forbid versus not allow or the difference between those two. Uh, and it had to do, and I can't quite remember the details, but he was doing a poll about American foreign policy and opinions towards it. Uh, and he was deciding between those two phrases uh, or that phrase in the word because the results would be dramatically different. This is around World War II. And so that this stuff like really, really matters. I mean, in presidential polling, it really matters. Uh, measuring attitudes towards policy, it really matters. And of course, with products, uh, it, it really, really matters. So, okay, so the second mind um, is... Uh, at some point, you've you got to uh, step outside all those rules and kind of rely on on your own experiences a little bit more. So the the uh, bathroom example with the toilet paper was something that actually happened. Uh, of course, this is like total comedy. We had to change. We had to like our office had to downgrade our toilet paper because the pipes couldn't handle two ply. So we had to switch from Charmin to like a cheaper version. And everyone like freaked the fuck out. Like it, it was okay. Maybe I'm being a little hyperbolic, but you can imagine like working in an office and they change the toilet paper. It's like going to be a topic of conversation. Oh uh, yeah. I've, I've had that. It's, <laughs> it's, it's surprisingly, uh, yeah, it's, it, it becomes a surprisingly big topic when, uh, when your toilet paper gets downgraded. It was so funny. Um, anyways, that's, um, I kind of took took off my um, 
you know, do's and don'ts of survey logic hat off and put on the, um, let's, let's see, like the, I, I'd like to think the same sort of hat that like a creative professional writer, comedian, et cetera, would put on and say, okay, I just felt something like I felt the weight of a brand, uh, through this, this kind of random occurrence. I'm pretty sure other people felt that too. How do I pull that out? Like, how do I phrase a question where other people see what I just saw? Uh, and in that case, like sometimes you can be direct. I mean, you, you could say like, you know, what, what brand would you most want? Uh, this is like perfectly fine question. Uh, but I found that the value of the question I asked is uh, how excited would, would you be if, if all the toilet paper was swapped out for Charmin? Is it actually helped the strategist think, kind of think through the problem? A- after that, I emailed the account director and was like, man, think of all the places where we use toilet paper but have no control over it, like, like airports. Um, why don't we do a branded campaign with an airport? Like we, you know, traveling sucks. We, we stock the good stuff. Um, now, again, that, that didn't go anywhere because we found out a lot of the airports, their pipes don't, <laughs> their, their pipes can't handle the two-ply cotton either. Uh, so not that I don't have some successful case study, success story at the end of this uh, example, but it, in my experience, we do, uh, I, I find that, a more indirect and creative way of asking those questions uh, is just is just kind of helps the strategists and other people that you're working with. Uh, I don't know, you know, maybe maybe think about the problem a little bit differently, open up new opportunities. Yeah, definitely. You, you're moving away from just the standard the standard kind of surveying questions. Have you got any advice for uh, maybe marketers who want to be getting more feedback from customers and surveying more? Um, you know, are there any big or common mistakes you see people make with, with trying to get this information that, that people should avoid? And, you know, are there, are there some key things that you'd say this, this is absolutely what you should be doing or thinking about if you're, if you're trying to collect this feedback? Well, you know, the, my first reaction is uh, I, have, I have way more to learn from the, the, the world of marketing than it, it has to learn from me. And uh, I'm, I'm really grateful to, to uh, each time I get to speak or pitch to a CMO because, you know, starting with their needs and their challenges is just, is always a good, um, is just, is just kind of the way to go. Um, so, uh, that, that's kind of my, uh, just disclaimer there. Um, but if I did, if I was in a position to, um, maybe dish out some advice, I'd, I'd say, I would say, um, to, to small, medium, and large businesses to not be afraid to ask, uh, you know, deeply personal questions uh, in the context of a survey or any other um, uh, environment in which you can solicit consumer feedback. Uh, I, I think you, you can use those questions like a question like, you know, what, what do you really value? Um, what activities uh, give you a sense of fulfillment? Uh, I think those types of questions can help you get to that second level we mentioned earlier about what 
Uh, and, and it's at that level, you kind of enter a better position to understand what people really want and what problem you're trying to solve for. To go back to it, yet another theme we mentioned earlier, there, there's the type of people that ask those questions, like what do you care about in life and what do you find fulfilling? Th those are kind of meaty uh, philosophical questions that have kind of fallen out of cultural favor. Uh, I, I don't know a lot of people that ask those questions in general. Those typically are, are like you're in the territory of philosophy and theology. Um, but nonetheless, I think, I think they have a place, maybe not a huge place, but a place in the, the world of consumer behavior and research. So, so I, I would encourage uh, uh, brands to uh, think along those lines. Again, I, um, all this should be grounded in good science. You know, you, you, you need to set up the survey in the right way and do good analysis and visualize it. And if there's room for a, a control group, use it to your advantage. Uh, so it's, I'm not, I'm not totally suggesting just to go out, cast the net wide and ask people what they care about. Uh, it, sh it should be grounded in, in, uh, it should be framed the right way and tied to the business challenge the right way. Uh, but, but it's a good starting point just to think at that level, I think can be helpful. Yeah. So don't, don't just go out and ask these deep, deep personal uh, questions, but don't be afraid to ask them if you think, you know, they're, they're relevant to what you're, the actual feedback you're trying to get. Um, and people will understand that. I think, yeah, one of the reasons people probably don't do that so much, I guess, is it's not quantitatively accessible. Um, you know, you have to read a lot of this feedback and it takes time. And, it, you know, you've got, you've got to have the resource to actually really assess all this feedback um, and, and someone who actually understands how to assess it and how one comment might relate to a, a score they've given. You know, so something I've seen with with NPS scores, you know, I I think yes, NPS scores are good. I think they're useful, um, but I think they are a bit limited. And part of that is because you will get comments from people saying this was absolutely fantastic, uh, no complaints at all, but they give it a score of a seven or an eight, I think, which is a like kind of neutral person. But their comment indicates that they're actually super happy. Um, and I think even one one of the previous companies I worked with. Um, I, I personally contacted a lot of people who gave NPS scores uh, and feedback to really try and assess what their feedback really meant. And so many times it, it felt like the, the, the number score they had given was actually a little bit arbitrary. Um, you know, they weren't, yeah. they were super happy, but they just kind of didn't want to give 10 out of 10 or a nine out of 10. They just, you know, I, I know I'm quite bad at that. i very, very rarely give 10 out of 10, even if I am super happy. Um, there's just something, <laughs> there's something going on in my head which says, no, you can't give 10 out of 10. It's just, it's not possible. Um, and there are other people who probably feel kind of a, a similar way, you know, um, or people who, you know, they, they have been perfectly happy with the with their purchase experience and the product they received, but it's just not, absolutely wild them um and it might be just because the product doesn't like it's quite it might be quite a mundane product that just fulfills a job in your house or whatever um but because it's not super exciting people won't give it 10 out of 10 it, um, that one through 10 scale is so odd isn't it i mean i i think uh again nodding along in agreement i 
I, uh, you have a little conversation with yourself as, as you know, is, am I a seven? Am I an eight? I, I've become a huge fan of just, of, uh, uh, just asking a question like that and giving them two options. Yes or no. Yeah. It's like, decide, would you recommend this, this product to a friend or not? I mean, <laughs> well, I and, think it's an eBay. I don't know if they still do it, but I, I think eBay you used to rate your sellers on just yes or no. Like, would you, would you recommend this seller? I think. Um, and it was literally just, that, uh, that, that just seems more, uh, uh, there, there's almost a, uh, kind of an odd sort of pleasure involved in, uh, being forced to make a decision. It's almost like I appreciate, I don't, I'm not familiar with that eBay example, but just as I, as I run that scenario through my head, it's almost like, Oh, thanks for just, just yeah, making, make, it, make it, making it easy for me. One final question then. Um, I get maybe more as a consumer for you because you're, because you're not a marketer. Do you have any pet peeves when it comes to marketing? Are there any like tactics out there you see that kind of bother you or, or know that, or even know that actually really get to you and work on you and, and you, you're annoyed that they actually work on you all the time. Uh, it's funny that you asked this because I just published something kind of in this vein. Um, the uh, marketers who call themselves storytellers, but they don't actually tell stories is a little bit of a pet peeve. Uh, a story has a beginning, middle, and end, and like an emotional arc and characters. And I, I rarely see that in marketing. Um, and I think it's just kind of fashionable to rebrand yourself as a storyteller. It kind of aligns with the goals of content marketing. So that's, uh, that's my kind of snobby, uh, but sincere thing that annoys me about, uh, the marketing world. But I mean, you know, to, to superficially, to, to criticize marketers for superficially jumping on a trend, it's like criticizing actors for being dramatic. Yeah, but no, I, I know what you mean. Uh, I, I know some, some people who really focus on storytelling and, and the stuff they post on LinkedIn in particular is, is really fantastic. You know, that there are stories there that, um, yeah, they do have those characters, they do have those emotions, and it, and it works really well at getting the point across. But I don't recall any of them calling themselves storytellers. So, um, yes, yeah, Sam, this has been absolutely fantastic. Um, I think we could, we could probably have gone on for a lot longer, so maybe there's a, there's a part two to this one. But, um, yeah, really great stuff. Thank you so much for coming on. Um, if people want to get in touch with you, what's, what's the best way of doing that? Uh, so the, the personal website is just my name, uh, sammcnerney.com. Same, uh, and it's th- through there. You can get uh, email, little little bio if you're interested. Uh, so that, that's the main portal. Uh, and then um, feel free to, uh, happy to connect on LinkedIn. But yeah, it's a pleasure. I mean, yeah, I, we could keep going here forever. So appreciate the... Uh, you reaching out and setting this up and asking great questions. I enjoyed it. Yeah, me too. Thanks, Sam. Customer feedback and research is just so important to move your business forwards and take things to the next level. But just trying to collect it isn't isn't enough. You've you've got to do it right. You've got to ask the right questions. You've got to provide the right answers for your quantitative research. You've got to be careful not to introduce bias into your questioning, um, and you've got to make sure you're just asking the right questions generally. You know, being a bit clever and creative is a great way to uh, to approach this. As you know, people do get used to the same old questions. They know they're being surveyed. 
So sometimes they'll give the answer they feel you want to hear or the one they feel is supposed to be correct. So a great way of gathering this feedback is to give people kind of odd situations or or just more creative scenarios and questions that require a bit more thought through uh, answers that don't seem directly related. But when you dive in and really assess the answers, you can get some great insight from it. If you want to learn more about customer research, reach out to Sam on LinkedIn or check out his blog, Here's My Question. And of course, you can always email will at customerswhoclick.com and I can point you in the right direction. Next up, I've got Rishi Rat uh, with me talking about the importance of copywriting and using a story-led approach to sales and conversion. But until then, keep those customers clicking. <laughs>